From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Russia's invasion means a Colorado nonprofit that's worked in Ukraine for years must pivot to disaster aid and combat medicine. Plus, a Denver college student with Ukrainian family who's stepped up. The reason I'm just trying to do this is because they need all of the support that they can get. Also, trying to predict which kids will get sickest from COVID. And later, pastor, author, and podcast host Nadia Bolzweber on managing overload these days. I'm not saying we should put our heads in the sand. I'm saying that if your circuits are overwhelmed, there's a reason. And the reason isn't because you're heartless. Then, a surprising trade means the Denver Broncos are the talk of the NFL, but at what cost? We ask a former player. And new labs in Colorado to test outdoor gear. I'm Mark Flynn, and I donated my car to CPR. It wouldn't go into first gear anymore, but it was running. The process was just as described, seamless, easy, and allowed me to make my first significant gift to Colorado Public Radio. Selling a car requires posting information, responding, haggling with would-be buyers. That sounded like a hassle to me. It was more important to me to make an investment in Colorado Public Radio. It's easy to donate your car. Just go to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When the Russian military began invading Ukraine, Oliver Sokolowski of Denver reached out to his cousin in Poland, who's married to a Ukrainian woman. Oliver figured they'd be trying to get her family out of Ukraine. You know, I gave him a call, but they didn't respond. And I, I knew, you know, of course, that they were, you know, just very stressed out and probably planning for something. But then when I gave them a text in the morning, they said, you know, that they were already in the car driving. Um, so that would have been like 6 a.m. local time in Poland. Um, and then they went, you know, to the border and they stood in the borderline for like seven hours to get everyone out um, through the Slovakian side. In all, her mother, father, two sisters and brother had fled the city of Uzhgarod, Ukraine, and made it to Poland, which has taken in more than a million refugees. Now Oliver, whose first language is Polish and who's visited Ukraine, is helping gather emergency supplies. His school, Regis University, is helping spread the word. It means Oliver can contribute, even though he's 5,000 miles away. The reason I'm just trying to do this is because they need all of the support that they can get. Because it's like my, even though everyone's evacuated in Poland right now, they're doing everything they can to raise funds for the military, um, to get medical donations. They've already assembled caravans full of medical gear and military gear. And that's already been sent actively to Kiev and Kharkiv to the fronts. So it's just me now doing my part to support my family here. But what's involved in getting supplies from Colorado into Ukraine? Something we'll ask of Project Cure, which is headquartered in Centennial. It's described as the world's largest distributor of donated medical equipment and supplies. Its executive director here is Barrett Walker. Barrett, welcome. Thanks, Ryan. Your nonprofit has worked in Ukraine since 1995, but the Russian invasion means a drastic change in the nature of your role. Help us understand the needs you were meeting for decades in Ukraine versus now. I want to understand the pivot. Absolutely. So we've been working, as you mentioned, since 1995. We've delivered 53 containers of medical relief to strengthen health systems there. 
Um, that would be containers 50% equipment, 50% supplies, and each one worth in today's dollars about $350,000 worth of medical supplies. Okay, and those were for hospitals? Hospitals, clinics, supporting medical centers. And as we've said, that's for decades. And those are uh, non-wartime sorts of supplies. That is to say, you know you've got a hospital facility where you can plug something in. Those are facilities that have had a thorough needs assessment, and we've evaluated thoroughly each part of their facility, the specialties, the training, the grid, every part of it. We have a lot of preparation that goes into the work of our normal, regular, standard uh, relief containers. This is different now. The normal situation, (laughs) right? Filling gaps in the healthcare system in Ukraine. But now, what is the picture? Now the picture is quite different with the two million displaced Ukrainians and the unthinkable tragedy, humanitarian crisis going on. We're only planning disaster relief. That's via ship and air. Obviously, the air is expedited. We're working against a backdrop of some transportation uh, delays and challenges. And uh, the relief looks very different. It's more trauma care, wound care. emergent supplies. What are those kinds of supplies? So you're going to you're talking about all kinds of surgical trays for um, and wound vac kits, hemorrhagic bandages, uh, anything you need for field hospitals and clinics to address the the trauma that the uh, Ukrainians are encountering. And that's a contrast to the sorts of supplies you'd been providing for decades. Um, for instance, NICU warmers, the kinds of things that you would have in a stable hospital with a source of electricity. Are you assuming that there may not even be power in some of the places that you're getting supplies to? Yes, those field clinics will have, if they do have power, it could be uh, spotty power. So we are preparing those loads. They're very low tech. They're very on-the-spot use kind of met- uh, medical supplies and equipment. Beds that are emergency relief beds. Um, even some stretchers, uh, all kinds of things that would be used specifically for a conflict zone. Barrett, can you tell us if the hospitals that you have worked with for so long are still standing? Do you know? The information is a little difficult to get right now. We have heard that 31 hospitals have been uh, bombed so far, and we don't know how many of those were facilities that we had worked with in the past. 31 hospitals which would no doubt be a human rights violation, would it not? A war crime, perhaps? Um, I'm not an expert on that, but I can tell you in the court of public opinion, this is really something that's not going to favor very well for them. All right. So I want to mention that you operate in 35 countries, not just 135. 135. Thank you for that. Uh Folks listening can donate medical supplies or money to Project Cure. You're looking for volunteers as well. I want to say that Charity Navigator rates your organization as exceptional for accountability, transparency, and finances. Do you have some sense that Russia might meddle in the work that you do specifically, though, in Ukraine? Uh, We've already encountered a bit of that. Uh, I would call it interference um, through our different tech systems. Uh, So we know that because we are on the front lines of um, Ukrainian relief and are caring for Colorado uh, campaign that that they might 
be that we might be targeted. And we have seen a bit of that interference, and we're working hard to prevent it and stop it at all costs. You had a shipment ready to go, which was delayed because of the invasion, right? Yes, we did. This shipment was actually not disaster relief. It had been months in the planning. It was one of our standard relief containers. Mm-hmm. It was uh, due to head out the week of the invasion and was delayed on the day of the invasion, the, the first day, because the port of Odessa closed down. We've since got that uh, container rerouted through Poland, and um, it we are able to get into Western Ukraine with it. So um, that will be fabulous, and as well as our air shipments. I mean, I think anyone who's tried to have something manufactured and shipped these days knows the difficulty of logistics in the pandemic, let alone in a war zone. I have to think that you are facing unprecedented costs for these logistics and just complications. Do you want to say a few words about that? Uh, That is exactly right, Ryan. We are facing a lot of increased costs. Um, Obviously, we want to get things there as quickly as possible and expedite those deliveries. That means air shipments. Those are running five to ten times what they were pre-pandemic, mm. um, the costs. And so we're working around that, but we've also had a, um, an outflowing outpouring of support and we look for more so we can get more supplies and uh, medical equipment into them. Okay. You know, I'm not someone who would have emergency bandages laying around. So w- when you get donated supplies, where do they come from? Oh, great question. They come from hospitals, manufacturers, wholesalers, Uh, medical facilities, sometimes even assisted living centers, uh, Hmm. all over. To this idea that you operate in 135 countries, you are facing globally unprecedented need because of what you call the three C's. What are the three C's, Barrett? That would be conflict, COVID, and climate. Those those really exacerbated the needs in these countries. Yes, yes. Conflict, certainly what we are seeing in Ukraine. COVID. That up the need Mm -hmm. in these places. And what was the third? Climate. And climate. Climate, there are just so many more climate-related disasters that are uh, creating more needs for our medical relief. Um, Countries all over the world are experiencing those. Look at Madagascar. It's the first uh, country that is... uh, has a, the distinction, the unfortunate distinction of a humanitarian health and food crisis due to climate. So that would be one country that we work closely with. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Barrett Walker is Denver Executive Director of Project Cure, which describes itself as the world's largest distributor of donated medical equipment and supplies. When we come back, unlocking some of the mysteries of COVID in children. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A different kind of ski lift. Grab a moving rope and it pulls you on your skis up the hill. It's one of Colorado's small city-owned ski hills where the lifts may be rudimentary and the slope could be the driveway to a luxury home. It's low cost or even no cost. There's no haves and have-nots in the ski hill. City-owned hills that keep skiing affordable. Story and pictures at CPR.org. There's a lull in COVID cases, hopefully a long-lasting one. But research into this still mysterious virus continues. Today, new insight into why some children 
develop severe disease and end up in the ICU. Dr. Blake Martin of Children's Hospital Colorado co-wrote a new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And Dr. Martin, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you very much for having me. In this research, how did you define a severe case of COVID in children? Yeah, so, you know, this was a study that used data from something called the the U.S. National COVID Collaborative, or N3C, uh, which is a national research cooperation that's supported for the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences out of the NIH. And this has, you know, over 12 million patients within it uh, and over 4 million COVID positive cases. Mm. Um, so we look specifically at children, uh, as you mentioned, and we define severe disease as being those children that required intensive care unit therapy. So being on a ventilator, uh, needing vasopressor medicines, which are medicines that uh, support the blood pressure and support heart function. Um, we also look uh, also included in that definition were patients that required mechanical support um, to oxygenate their blood, something called ECMO, and also included, you know, children who experienced mortality and passed away during the study. All right. So just to unpack a bit of what you've said there, the scale of this study is huge, and that means that the results presumably do tell us something concrete, uh, and that children who were on any of those therapies might qualify as a severe case as you defined it. Um, I will say that context and scale feel really important in this discussion. We've heard over and over again that older people are most susceptible to COVID. How often have you seen kids in the ICU with the virus? Yeah, good question. And, you know, to your point, this was one of the largest studies looking at SARS-CoV-2 or COVID in the pediatric population. And we identified of the million or so children that were tested, um, about 167,000 that were positive. And of those, just over 10,000 or so uh, ended up in the hospital. Now, we really, we really wanted to focus in on those hospitalized children. And overall, we found that of those 10,000 or so, 1,423 or 14% ended up needing these intensive care unit therapies. Of that subset. So um, I guess just for someone listening concerned about whether their kid might end up in the ICU, can we call that a rare outcome? Yes, absolutely. And I think that was one of the you know, the comforting things we found with this study is that severe disease and especially, you know, deaths, mortality are, are very rare in children overall. And so when you look at the 167,000 children that tested positive, only about eight out of those 10,000 um, passed away during the study. Okay. So uh, that perspective is important. As you say, it might uh, give someone peace of mind, but of course there were very sick children. And that's what we're going to dive deeper into now. Your goal was to help healthcare providers predict which kids, once hospitalized, might get the sickest. And what patterns emerged from this uh, enormous data set? Yeah, you know, we saw some patterns that were reflected in adults and then some patterns that were surprising. Um, So overall, we found a lot of different independent risk factors, meaning that each of these imparts an additional risk for ending up in the ICU. So boys more so than girls, boys had about 1.4 times the odds of ending up in the ICU. Black or African-American children had about 1.25 times the odds. Uh, Obese children were also more likely to end up in the ICU. And then one of the highest risk um, 
comorbidities that we found are children that are medically complex or medically fragile. So for instance, if a child had a history of cancer, they had about 1.8 times the odds of needing these ICU therapies. Or if a, children if a child had a history of cardiovascular disease, they also had about 1.8 times the odds of ending up in the ICU compared to a children without those conditions. Okay. So pre-existing conditions, and I imagine immunity and immune strength have something to do with that last category, do you think? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think that's part of it. And, you know, that's one of the goals of the study is to sort of, you know, help people uh, know what studies to do. We, we call that hypothesis generating research. And so we're hopeful that by identifying these risk factors, additional teams, including our own out of CU, um, can, you know, perform future studies to understand why these risk factors impart uh, you know, a higher odds of ending up in the ICU. Okay, then you mentioned obesity, and we know throughout the pandemic that uh, folks who are obese have been more susceptible to COVID. You've said boys over girls, uh, mm -hmm. and we've seen this play out, severe illness more in males than females for the most part. Uh, you want to speak just briefly to the idea that black children seemed to be more susceptible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, this is something that we've seen in the adult population as well. And um, it is not totally, totally clear what the cause for this is. Like, is it related to healthcare access? Are there genetic or environmental factors involved? Um, and, you know, we hope that this study sort of spurs other researchers to try to dive a little bit further into this and, and understand why these children are at higher risk for developing severe disease. I wonder if there are any tests that a doctor might not normally run, a pediatrician might not normally run, that with this data, maybe they should to predict or to avert severe disease? Or are there signs that they should look for that they might not normally? Yeah, great question. And I think that's one of the, the coolest things about the study that we did is we, we did try to, you know, dive really deeper into the data from these children to help doctors identify, you know, which kids are at the highest risk for these complications. And what we found is that there are a lot of very subtle changes in their initial vital signs. So things like heart rate, and respiratory rate, their oxygen levels, and a lot of very subtle changes in like very commonly sent lab tests, like their white blood cell count, or even electrolytes like sodium and potassium. And what we found is that even if a value comes back normal, there are very subtle differences in those kids who end up deteriorating and ending up in the ICU versus those that do not. And so when you take, you know, these 30, 40, 50, you know, pieces of data between vital signs and lab values, our hope is that we can put these together into a computer algorithm that is able to tell a clinician, hey, this child has a very high risk for deterioration. They probably require or merit closer monitoring and maybe more aggressive treatment. And more, okay, but we don't have that yet. That's something that you would develop out of this. Correct. And that's the, something that you know many research teams, including our own, are looking into is developing what we call a clinical decision support tool. So basically a computer algorithm that can compile all of these very subtle changes in vital signs and lab values to help make these predictions about which kids are going to get really sick. Fascinating. It's, it's not quite like this, but um, autopilot for a physician. In other words, <laughs> it's taking more data sets than maybe one brain at a bedside could crunch and helping provide a picture. You know, doctor, very early on in the pandemic, researchers identified a condition called 
multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children or MISC, MISC in children. Uh, can you explain that condition and how it might fit into your findings about COVID in kids? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so MISC, uh, as you alluded to, is an inflammatory condition that occurs about two to five weeks after an initial infection with the COVID virus, with SARS-CoV-2. Um, and this is a condition associated with full body inflammation where the immune system is hyperactive. Um, and in many case, cases, these children are you know, sicker than kids who just come in with COVID. So when you look, when we looked at patients with MISC in our study, we found that um, about 17% of them required being on a ventilator compared to just 6% in the COVID group. And over a quarter of them required medications to boost their blood pressure or support their heart compared to just 5% in the group of children with COVID. Um, you know, thankfully, MISC is a rarer condition. So mm -hmm. we had about 700 cases out of the 10,000 hospitalized children with COVID. Um, but it, it is a dangerous condition. And I think one thing that came out of this study, which has been reflected by a lot of other good studies, is that it's really younger and otherwise healthy children that are at higher risk for this condition. Uh, and I think that's just something for us all to keep in mind. You know, we think of healthy children as doing fine if they were to get a COVID infection, which, you know, at large is definitely still the case. Um, but it really is these younger and otherwise healthy children that don't have complex medical conditions that seem to be at higher risk for getting one of these MISC diagnoses versus just having COVID. Unsettling. Uh, but thank you for helping us understand that. Before we go, many parents and caregivers are waiting to see if regulators approve COVID vaccines for children under five. Um, briefly, what effect do you think that might have on the path of the virus? Yeah, you know, like many healthcare providers, I've been very happy to see the COVID numbers coming down. Um, and I think one thing we don't know yet is will this become a seasonal virus? So similar to other coronaviruses, are we going to see a spike every year during the respiratory season from, you know, December through April or May. Uh, if that is the case, then this could be something we're dealing with every year where we have a spike of SARS-CoV-2 of COVID. And so anything we can do to minimize the spread of the virus will save lives. Um, and so even though children less than five are overall, they do very well with the virus and they get over it. If we're able to prevent infections from spreading from them, to other children or adults, especially in these high-risk children, that's something that could save lives. And so, you know, my hope is that uh, when the data comes out regarding, you know, vaccine efficacy and side effects, uh, that the data really supports, you know, children getting vaccinated. And that, that's my expectation. Um, and I think as a parent, uh, I'm also waiting for that news as well. Mm. Thank you, doctor. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Dr. Blake Martin, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the CU School of Medicine and an ICU physician at Children's Hospital, Colorado. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with why your empathy, your attention span for anguish, has its limits. Because it was built for a different time, says Denver pastor and podcaster Nadia Boltz-Weber. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Ellis Meredith grew up steeped in women's activism as the daughter of a well-known Montana suffragette. In Denver, she worked at the Rocky Mountain News, first as a proofreader, then as a political journalist. At a time when women couldn't vote, she advocated for women's rights in her column, Women's World. 
1893, Ellis Meredith met Susan B. Anthony and asked her help to get Colorado women the right to vote. If Colorado goes for a woman's suffrage, she said, you may count on a landslide in that direction throughout the West. Just a few months later, Colorado women did gain the right to vote. They used it to enact child labor laws, an eight-hour workday, and child abuse and negligence laws. Called the Susan B. Anthony of Colorado, Ellis Meredith went on to campaign for women's suffrage nationwide, and in 1910, defeated seven men to become Denver's first female elected official, the city election commissioner. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Coble & Company. It's easy to get overwhelmed by everything that's wrong with the world today. And the more you're plugged into the news, the more you may feel that. Which is why we want to share an essay by Nadia Boltz-Weber, the Denver pastor, author, and podcast host. It's about carving out what you can and can't take on. I used to live in this very old apartment building with super sketchy electrical wiring. Were I to audaciously assume my hairdryer could run while my stereo was on, I would once again find myself opening the gray metal fuse box next to the refrigerator and flipping the breaker. My apartment had been built at a time when there were no electric hairdryers, and the system shut down when modernity just asked too much of it. I think of that fuse box often these days because, friends... I just do not think our psyches were developed to hold, feel, and respond to everything coming at them right now. Every tragedy, injustice, sorrow, and natural disaster happening to every human across the entire planet in real time every minute of every day. The human heart and spirit were developed to be able to hold, feel, and respond to any tragedy, injustice, sorrow, or natural disaster that was happening in our village. So my emotional circuit breaker keeps overloading because the hardware was built for an older time. And yet when I check social media, it feels like there are voices saying, if you aren't talking about, doing something about, performatively posting about fill in the blank, then you are an irredeemably calloused, privileged bigot who is part of the problem. And when I am someone who does actually care about human suffering and injustice, someone who feels every picture I see and story I read, it leaves me feeling like absolute garbage. I'm left with wondering, am I doing enough, sacrificing enough, giving enough, saying enough about all the horrible things right now to think of myself as a good person and subsequently silence the accusing voices in my head? No. The answer is always no. No, I'm not. Nor could I. Because no matter what I do, the goal of enough is just as far as when I started. And yet doing nothing is hardly the answer. So I wanted to share something with you. Every day of my life, I ask myself three discernment questions I learned from one of my teachers, Suzanne Stabile. One, what's mine to do and what's not mine to do? Two, what's mine to say and what's not mine to say? And the third one is harder. What's mine to care about and what's not mine to care about? To be clear, that's not to say that it is not worthy to be cared about by someone, only that my effectiveness in the world cannot extend to every worthy-to-be-cared-about event and situation. It's not an issue of values. It's an issue of math. 
I know this is a complicated thing because there are injustices that have only been addressed because for the first time they've become widely known through social media. But at the same time, I can't help but feel like the wiring in our brains and psyches and hearts and spirits wasn't meant to take in all the information we consume each day. So I try and remember, we are still living through a global pandemic. And that means the baseline of anxiety and grief is higher than ever and shared by everyone. Also, the world is on fire, literally and metaphorically. But I only have so much water in my bucket to help with the fires. And it feels like the more exposure I have to fires I have no water to fight, the more likely I am to get so burned and inhale so much smoke that I cannot help anymore with the fires close enough to fight once my bucket is full again. So I try and tell myself that it's okay to focus on one fire. It's okay to do what's yours to do, to say what's yours to say, to care about what's yours to care about. That's enough. If immigration reform is yours to do, if it is the fire you have water to throw on, thank you, and that is enough. There will be voices saying, but what about climate change? You don't care the planet is dying? Tune that out. I mean, you could turn around and ask the environmentalist next door why they heartlessly don't care about immigrants, but there's no percentage in that. Instead, we could be so grateful for the people who are called to work on and respond to worthy issues that are not fires we ourselves are equipped to put out. I'm not saying we should put our heads in the sand. I'm saying that if your circuits are overwhelmed, there's a reason And the reason isn't because you're heartless. It's because there is no human heart on this planet that can bear all of what is happening right now. So thank you for being a person who cares about and responds to animals or the environment or immigration or domestic violence or any of the other worthy-to-be-cared-about places of suffering that we are in the midst of right now. Just thank you. Pastor Nadia Boltzweber founded the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver. She's now an author, speaker, and podcast host. Her essay is titled, If You Can't Take In Any More, There's a Reason. I've tweeted a link to it. On her substack, The Corners, at CPR Warner. We'll also put a link in today's podcast at CPR.org. You don't really have to remind Denver Broncos fans what happened the last time the team faced the Seattle Seahawks on the NFL's biggest stage. Marvin started the play in the backfield. Wilson's going to float it. Baldwin downfield. What a throw. What a catch. First and goal. Dominant performance across the board. The Seahawks decimated Denver at Super Bowl 48 behind quarterback Russell Wilson. But 2014's dejection 
will give way to paroxysms of joy this fall when that same Russell Wilson is expected to take over behind center for the Broncos. On Tuesday, the team acquired Wilson in a trade that sent tongues wagging across the league. To help sort all this out, commentator and former Bronco Ryan Harris is back. Hi, Ryan. It's great to join the best-dressed cat owner and broadcaster in Colorado. Fun to join you, Ryan. Oh, that's a, a very kind thing to say. Russell Wilson has played 10 seasons in the NFL, uh, as we heard, winning one Super Bowl at the Broncos' expense. Interestingly, he was also drafted by the Colorado Rockies, briefly playing minor league baseball before focusing on football. What stands out to you when you think of his uh, NFL career, though? One of the top quarterbacks in the NFL, consistently one of the best quarterbacks at completing passes beyond 20 yards. Uh, He had his first losing season of his career last season. And oh, by the way, he was out due to a a, a broken thumb in in the entire season. So he he is one of the most elite producers at the quarterback position. And it was fun, Ryan. I got to call the Seahawks Steelers game that he didn't play in but what was notable is on the field you know Russell was running plays every five yards and when I got to the field he was near one end zone I said Russ man what are you doing he turned to me and said we're in the fourth quarter Ryan and he just went back to calling plays and by himself just looking at the field so he has a tireless work ethic he is an impeccable passer and he's a fantastic leader somebody who believes that hard work creates opportunities and uh, he's very fun to sit down and have dinner with. You've had, you've sat down and had dinner with him? Yeah, my wife and I shared a, a Kobe meatball, you know, with him and, and some dinner at uh, our mutual friend Brady Quinn's wedding. And just a quality person, you know, somebody who if you didn't know he played football, he wouldn't tell you that. You wouldn't have known. Um, so he, he's just he's great for the NFL. He's he's great for his teammates and he's great for this Denver franchise. Now, among analysts, the consensus quarterback pick was Aaron Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers. Uh, in fact, not long before the Wilson trade was announced, and I, I loved all the Tom Hanks volleyball gifs on social media. <laughs> Wilson! Uh, Rodgers, who's been the NFL's most valuable player the last two seasons, um, signed a new deal with his team. Uh, all things considered, which of the two would you rather see in Denver? Well, especially after what's happened, I really like Russell Wilson here in Denver. Number one, he's five years younger, and that's not to be ageist, just to be a realist that five more years of wear and tear in the NFL has an effect on your body. Uh, Also, I I appreciate the way that Russell Wilson did this. We didn't hear about any punch of chakras or cleanses or things like that, right? He just uh, appeared as a Bronco after some diligent work um, uh, by George Payton. I mean, I think this is a great move by George Payton something that really keeps the franchise competitive. I don't think you're as competitive if you gave all those picks to uh, to Green Bay for Aaron Rodgers, who's 38 years old. Um, and you got somebody who understands class and work, and that's all that the Broncos are about. High class, high work, high production. Uh, Russell Wilson is going to be a perfect fit, and I believe he's the better fit of those two quarterbacks. And reading the tea leaves, then, you're saying he wanted to be in Denver. Wilson. Absolutely. He actually has a no trade clause in his contract. One of the few athletes in the NFL who was able to negotiate that. So this trade's only possible because he wanted to do it. He wanted, he said, yes, I will go to Denver. So not only does Denver get the quarterback it wants, but it gets a quarterback that wants to be here in Denver. And that's just phenomenal. And it's really, and this is where being a great city altogether makes a difference. Denver is one of the places that consistently in the NFL 
people want to come to to visit. They want to play here. It's the only place in, in the NFL where I've experienced that the majority of players stay here after they're done playing, even if they go on to other teams. Hmm. So we as a city have built a really eclectic community that invites people of all kinds. And in this case, it invited the next franchise quarterback of our Broncos. You mentioned uh, George Payton, general manager. How's, how's his thumb? Do we know? <laughs> I'm sure they know. Yes. I mean, there is pending a physical and all this will become official on March 16th. Uh, when the new league year starts. But yes, Russell Wilson will be healthy. Uh, he finished the season, so that lets you know that he, he continued to feel like he could play. Um, and I'll tell you something, Ryan, You know, being able to play and being healthy are two very different things. I doubt Russell Wilson was 100% healthy, though he was playing, and you need that out of that quarterback position because you are not going to be healthy week 17, week 21, when you're in the playoffs in an AFC championship game. Uh, and that kind of toughness bodes well for all the teammates that, that he will have on the Broncos. Is Wilson a magnet for f- free agents? Absolutely. And not only a magnet, but the type of magnet that can reduce the cost of free agency for the Broncos. You know, uh, Amari Cooper is a receiver who could be in the neighborhood of $20 million a year. Does he take a one-year deal for 7 or $11 million to play with Russell Wilson? Uh, you can find We can find defensive players. And Look no further than the Super Bowl 50 roster that we had. You know, you had Emmanuel Sanders. You, you had Aqib Tlaib and, and Demarcus Ware. When it's not just that you have Russell Wilson, you have a general manager and an organization that just signaled to the rest of the NFL, we are going to win a championship. And that's what players want, especially players who've maybe had a couple of contracts, had some success. Vaughn Miller could be in that discussion as well. You could maybe get Vaughn Miller back for a less than market rate huh? because it's not just Russell Wilson. You have an ch- organization that wants to win a championship and is doing everything it can to do that. And unfortunately, there are not enough of those franchises in the NFL. I mean, I think of the fact that Peyton Manning for so long was that kind of lure. Now, in the six seasons since Super Bowl 50, Denver has started 12 different players at quarterback. Is that proof that you have to have an elite talent at that position if you're going to win? Absolutely. And, and Ryan, one of the things I like doing, give it, give it the relationship test. You know, if you had 12 significant others in the last six years, are you being <laughs> successful? Right. So you, you got to you need that one. We you know, we want we all know what that's like to, to have that one that makes us happy. And now Denver has that. They have a relationship that passes the relationship test and also just gives hope. I mean. I don't care if you like football or not. This city's been electric in the 24 hours that this was announced. And I'm sure non-football fans who, who are married to football fans got flowers or a happy husband or wife the other day, you know. And this is the effect that sports has on society. It's a crucial role it plays, and Denver's proving how crucial that can be in, in our city right now. Is it dangerous, though, to place just so much emphasis on one position, on one player, Absolutely not. You know, you have to commit. You know, one of the things about winning a championship, individually, players have to commit to the sacrifices that are going to work, whether that's telling family members you're not going to see them on Friday nights or, hey, take care of the tickets yourself. But you have to commit to winning. And again, when you commit to a player like this and Russell Wilson, who was injured for the first time in his career, by the way, missed the first games of his career in his ninth year as an NFL quarterback. Uh, that signals to the rest of the roster that you're going to get the pieces that help you win a championship. And yes, quarterback is the most important, but it also it also helps you build the surrounding players, not just 
their production and getting them here, but the confidence. You know, one of the things that a, a quarterback like Russell Wilson does, if, if Ryan Warner drops the ball, he's not going to, you know, he's going to throw it to you again probably quickly to give you your confidence back in the game hmm. before you get to the fourth quarter. And so those kinds of things have a lasting effect on players in the franchise, and I can't wait to see what happens. Denver gave up two first-round, two second-round, and a fifth-round pick to Seattle, along with defensive tackle Shelby Harris, tight end Noah Fant, and quarterback Drew Locke. Is that a worthy trade-off? Absolutely. Okay. Um, Drew Locke is a good, not great quarterback. Noah Fant is a good, yet-to-be-great tight end. Shelby Harris is probably the best player of those three consistently. Uh, and a friend of mine, it's good. But, you know, you have to make moves like this to be successful. And, yes, you gave away some draft picks, but you still have this season. You have a second-round pick. You have uh, two-fourths and two-fifths. So you still have a lot of space to build if you're the Broncos mm. and to continue with those draft picks to, to build a roster. Now you need a linebacker. You need an offensive tackle. You still have the opportunity to get those things separate from free agency in the draft. We have just a few seconds. Did you uh, have you have you spoken with Wilson? Did you not not since not, the deal? No, okay, but, uh, but I do have a volleyball, so I don't know which Wilson you're asking about. <laughs> yes, no, it's, it. Uh, I yeah. can't wait to meet him and see him out here, and uh, it's going to be good to see an old friend. And I'm just so happy for Broncos country, a loyal fan base that delivers so much to its players. It's good to get some good news to the great people of this state. Some good news. Uh, thank you so much, Ryan. Nice to speak with you. Former Bronco Ryan Harris, analyst for Westwood One Radio and broadcaster at Altitude Sports Radio in Denver. We discussed the Broncos trade Tuesday for quarterback Russell Wilson, who, by the way, is married to singer-songwriter Sierra. Level up, 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 level up. All this on me so yummy. Say you want to hit the ski slopes or the mountain bike trails, but you need some new gear. The choices are endless and often really expensive. Our next guest, Jonathan Ellsworth, started a company, Blister Review, to take some of the question marks out of buying outdoor gear. In an unusual partnership, Ellsworth has teamed up with Western Colorado University in Gunnison, as well as CU Boulder, to help put everything from jackets to poles to the test. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Happy to be here. You were a philosophy professor in Chicago before <laughs> pivoting to the world of gearheads, doing reviews of outdoor equipment there in the mountains around Crested Butte. How did that transition happen? <laughs> I think like a, a number of people, initially I was intending to move west for what was going to be a summer. Hmm. And that is now 20 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, from that time, I was out actually working on a dissertation and could have been anywhere in the world. I didn't really start playing seriously in the mountains till I was uh, older. I was an adult and I was in my 20s. But so many people have stories of, you know, their parents getting them on skis when they were two or three years old. And mm. I was in Chicago playing football and basketball, uh, not thinking about mountains. 
I imagine, though, a way that your story is similar to others is that you probably faced some sticker shock as you entered <laughs> these sports. Yes. Maybe prior to the sticker shock, though, you know, I was a decent athlete, but, you know, somebody coming from pretty mainstream sports like football and basketball. And as I was really developing a curiosity and interest and eventually, you know, full blown passion for skiing and mountain biking and trail running and climbing, et cetera, more than the price of things, I was very sure that if I could figure out what the right equipment would be for me, that it would really help me progress in these sports and just enjoy them more. And so really my story was um, trying to find very good consumer product information about all of this expensive equipment. And I really struggled to find that. Lister's top line reviews are free online. Yeah. You have a podcast and a seasonal buyer's guide. Yep. And then people pay for like the really in-depth stuff um, that lets, yeah. you, lets, lets you know that something will fit like a glove, I suppose, literally <laughs> in a gloves case or figuratively. How do you make sure people don't game the reviews? How do you mean that, Ryan? Well, you know, I just think when I buy something online anymore, I'm very uncertain as to whether the people doing the reviews mm, are unbiased yeah. or, you know, a sister of someone who works for the company. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. I actually think that this, you're, you're identifying the issue of just trust, right? What publications can we trust? What media outlets can we trust? And what I find interesting about the work we're doing at Blister is I actually think that question of trust extends far beyond the outdoor industry. We read headlines that sort of tell us the exact opposite bits of news often. And, and so that issue of trust is often what I say that we are kind of first and foremost in the business of. And so one of the things we, would do, we do with our reviewers we try to remove those inherent conflicts of interest. So it is often a thing in the outdoor world where, say, reviewers will be sponsored by a particular brand and yeah. still allowed to participate in tests where they are then weighing in and reviewing products from the brands they are sponsored by and some of the competitor brands that they are not sponsored by. So that's one way in which we eliminate those conflicts of interest. Perhaps a more significant one is that we don't take any advertising dollars from the gear manufacturers that we review. And that is a radically different approach to reviewing gear in the outdoor world, where many outdoor media outlets make most of their revenue from advertising deals with the gear manufacturers. We don't do that. We've never done that. So that's a very painful principle. We turn down a lot of money, but we uh, have just found it to be the right thing to do. And, you know, it's been a, one of our guiding principles that has developed a lot of trust in our growing community. Blister has now added the expertise of engineers working in labs 
who will do another layer of gear analysis. So enter your, your partnership with Western Colorado University and see you. Uh, get vivid with me. What can professors and students in a lab do in terms of testing that like a recreational user might not, you know, with a particular yeah. piece of equipment? Yeah, um, this is an amazing partnership. We're going to be examining and kind of interrogating the history of some of the tests that are still current in our industry. So for example, when we're testing, say, the water resistance of technical apparel, this happens all the time. People walk into a store, they want to buy a waterproof jacket so they can go hike a Colorado 14er or something like that. Well, what is the history of these tests? Who started them? How have they evolved over time? We're doing this sort of groundwork on those tests first, with the goal then to look at the opportunities to perhaps enhance those tests, perhaps create some new standards, and create standards that will be a bit more user-friendly while still maintaining a real integrity in terms of the results and the communication of those results. You know, one of the things we're currently not doing at Blister is attaching sensors to skis and to mountain bike wheel sets when we're actually out on the ski slopes or out on the trails. This is something that will now be happening at Blister Labs. Blister is a for-profit company. Your mm. revenue stream is largely subscriptions for those in-depth, <laughs> the geekiest reviews. Yes. Um, so are you paying these engineering students? Like, what do they get out of it? You get the free yeah. labor, if not. That's something that we're kind of letting the engineering faculty at Western and CU Boulder figure out. And my understanding is that there are definitely going to be paid opportunities there. Some of the work that we are doing is also directly in courses. So I'm actually spending much more time than I used to in classrooms at Western or on Zoom calls. And so this is actually getting baked in. The work, some of the work that I'm talking about, uh, students are doing for credit. Jonathan, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. I appreciate the interest. You getting out in the snow today? Absolutely. Jonathan Ellsworth is the founder of Blister Review and the new Blister Lab, a collaboration with the engineering departments at Western Colorado University and CU Boulder. Blister tests outdoor gear to help consumers make educated choices. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that passes the test. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Nancy Lawholm. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us. <laughs>